1: Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. Today's Crash Course, Disney versus the Battle of the Bobs. Imagine you're Bob Iger. You relinquished Disney's CEO suite in 2020 with a sterling legacy intact, smart, game-changing acquisitions, a good culture, steady, imaginative leadership, soaring profits, and a jumbo stock price and a sort of bet the ranch move into streaming that puts profit making aside in favor of reinventing the entertainment platform your entire business rests upon. All is going swimmingly when you turn things over to your successor, Bob Chapek. You title your autobiography, The Ride of a Lifetime. What a way to go. Then boom, COVID lockdowns hit just weeks after you step down. Disney's business sputters. Chapek alienates your entire team and the board, and that streaming bet unravels. What do you do? You roll back in as CEO less than three years after you left the company. Chapek is pushed out. How often does something like that happen? Like never. Even Steve Jobs waited 11 years to make his round trip as Apple CEO. Wow, there are a lot of collisions to sort out here. I sort of imagine. Mickey Mouse at the Disney bar having a bunch of drinks at the end of the day because it's all been so crazy. And that's why I invited my pal Beth Coit of Bloomberg Opinion to join me today. I've had the pleasure of getting to know Beth's work. She's one of the best analysts of the financial and business landscape, and I can't think of anybody better to help me think through this mess, this very interesting mess, than Beth. So thanks, Beth.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled.
1: So Beth, let's start with an overview. How, you know, how good Was Bob Iger. You've been watching him for a fairly long time in the whole sort of pantheon of American business CEOs. Where do you put him?
2: He's an iconic CEO. He was at Disney for 15 years in that role. He's one of those guys that's sort of synonymous with his brand. So I think people really looked at him and thought that, you know, he is kind of the model of what a brand like Disney needs. I think his reputation has been tarnished, though, by this really failed CEO success. Well, slow down. You're already
1: at the end I'm of sorry. the show. All right. yeah, slow we'll down get, for a minute. We'll get there. I mean, this is a guy who started out as a weatherman.
2: That's right. Right. That's right.
1: Like, he's a profoundly self-made person.
2: He is. And I think one thing that's really interesting to me in this whole narrative is that a lot of people never thought he should be CEO of Disney. He really had to fight for that job. He had a sort of troubled step into the CEO role. So the fact that we're seeing this happen again is kind of telling that he didn't make sure his successor didn't Slid have in
1: there easily. Exactly. I mean, he went from Weatherman to ABC, where he was fetching coffee for people. That's right. And eventually got managerial roles, and mm-hmm. it turned out he was a natural manager. And then he comes into Disney in the Eisner era.
2: That's right, uh, through an acquisition. ABC was acquired by Disney in the 90s. Right. Came in that way. Tough people. Tough, tough people. guys. And he was Eisner's right-hand guy.
1: And everyone just sort of saw him during that period as a nice guy who could never lead a company like Disney. Exactly. And then lo and behold, he led a company like Disney. How did that happen?
2: I think part of it was that he did have to fight for the job. So again, no one really expected that he would be CEO. He was the internal candidate. The board was looking outside as well. And it was not a given. And he fought for the role. He got it. And he immediately came in. I mean, one of his first moves as CEO, was buying Pixar. So all of a sudden, this guy that had sort of been plodding along, you know, doing Michael Eisner's bidding now has these really visionary ideas for how to change and transform this brand. And did
1: that surprise people who had written him off as this kind of, you know, good lieutenant, quasi-water boy, ex weatherman, man, etc.? Once he got that seat, did he begin surprising people right away with what he was capable of?
2: I think he did. I think he did. I mean, he really transformed this company. So Pixar is the big one, first big one, then Marvel then Lucasfilms. I mean, by the time he left, this was a completely different place than when he started.
1: And could another CEO have done that?
2: I don't think so. I think it really must have taken a lot of confidence in this vision. I mean, at the time, he was criticized for overpaying for these deals that turned out to be extremely lucrative for the company. You know, he paid a couple billion for each of them.
1: And then let's pause on each of those for a minute. I mean, Pixar was a cool deal. Pixar was Steve Jobs' animation studio, right? It was this baby he had built when he first left Apple. right? And he hung on to it. He was the company's biggest shareholder. He didn't want other people to come in and acquire it. And yet, Iger was able to do that. He was able to win Jobs' confidence, right?
2: Yes. And it was a big win because Jobs and Iger did not get along. So Iger was sort of able to change his mind on Disney. I mean, that's something about Bob Iger. He is a real statesman, right? He knows how to work with people, talk to people. He's authentic. He's authentic. And so he and Steve Jobs had a real relationship. He ended up on the Apple board. I think they were real friends.
1: They were deep friends. I think by the end of Jobs' life, they both would say that. I think Iger felt a loss when Jobs died. Agree. He also did Marvel. Like, he recognized the value of a superhero franchise in movie theaters, which my two boys can both attest to the importance of.
2: Exactly. I don't want to be too gendered, but I think that part <laughs> of this was, yeah, how do we bring in more of a male audience, too? So yeah. that was Marvel. I think that was Lucasfilm. So it and was...
1: the idea of tentpole movies. Exactly. That you could put out in the summer and earn bazillions of dollars that would fund other things.
2: Right. So it's a system. I mean, Disney's such a vast landscape, right? It's the entertainment piece. It's the parks. It takes a certain kind of person that can figure out how all these components fit and work together. Theme parks,
1: animation, movies, TV. That's a lot to juggle. It's a lot. And then he caps that off with a massive, massive acquisition of 20th Century Fox.
2: Right. Which he's also criticized for overpaying for.
1: What do you think? Did he overpay for that?
2: I think it's too soon to tell because, again, like he was criticized early on for overpaying for these other deals, which turned out to be bargains in the end. I mean, we'll get to this, I think, but... Part of this is this acquisition is really tied to his bet on streaming. He needed content, and this was the fastest way to get it.
1: So for folks out there that wonder, what is this thing called streaming? Let's tell people what streaming is, just for a minute. Because it's, it's just a fancy word for something that's obvious, right?
2: Right. Streaming is watching shows on your computer. Like
1: you're doing right now.
2: Right. On your timeline rather than on the cable schedule.
1: And that's a threat to traditional TV because it's not appointment based and it's not dependent on a broadcast network.
2: Right, it means there can be so much more content out there which also disrupts the advertising model. It really is scary to a lot of these legacy companies in terms of how it changes their model.
1: And if you're running a legacy company, I guess the scariest monster in that mix is Netflix, right? That's right. They're all sitting back, lush and happy on their riches and their content and in walks a disruptor, Netflix, Which completely changes how people view media.
2: Yeah, and Disney initially partnered with them early on. They were putting out a lot of their content on Netflix. And then I think Iger decides, I think he said something to the effect of, we're giving nuclear weapons to a third world country and now they're using them against us. So he stops. He said, we're not going to do this anymore. And that's, I think, when he realized, okay, we need to build our own streaming service.
1: So were other executives responding to this disruptive technology moment in the same way, making a decision that we need to be in this business. It doesn't matter if it pays off. We're going to throw in and make a go of this.
2: I think Disney was really the first traditional media company to do that. It was before, I would say, really tech companies, and mostly has been tech companies that are upstarts. I really can't think of that many. Amazon, Apple. Exactly, exactly. There's not many legacy traditional media companies that have done this successfully.
1: And that's not because they're stupid. And it's not because they're unimaginative. It's because they're already harvesting a lot of money from their traditional businesses that streaming would threaten, whereas Amazon and Apple are coming into it with a clean slate. Right. They don't have a, a legacy movie business. They don't have a legacy TV business. Right. So it's easier for them to embrace it. And it's sort of a rounding error to a certain extent among all of their businesses.
2: Right. Right. And so, I mean, if you put it that way, it also, I think, puts in perspective what a big deal it was for Disney to decide to do this, right, to actually disrupt its model and say, okay, this is where the future is and we need to go here.
1: And, you know, a lot of legacy businesses haven't been able to do that because the managers don't have enough trust within the organization or from their board or from investors to just say we're doing this. It may not make sense in the short term, but we think it's where we need to be in the long term. And Iger had the cred. Iger was able to do that, which is unusual.
2: It is. It is. I think at that point, he placed all these bets that had really paid off. So his board, Wall Street, trusted him to figure it out.
1: And do you think he figured it out because he was insightful, because he was paranoid, because he recognized the change, all of the above? Was there a single factor or is it too hard to know?
2: Well, I think one caveat is, has he figured it out? Right. I mean, this is a big question mark, I think, in streaming in general. Is the model really established, especially for a company like Disney? But
1: he was clearly inspired by something to do it.
2: Yes. That and, is and,
1: and what do you think the inspirational factor was? Was he, I'm freaked out? Was he, I can't wait to do this? Or was he, this just makes sense and we're going to do it regardless?
2: I think it was probably a little all of the above. I uh-huh. think, you know, maybe watching Netflix grow and say, wait a second. Are these guys really our allies or our competitors here? And we need to figure out how to get into this in a way where we're just sort of disrupting our own business rather than letting Netflix do it.
1: I think it's cool that he did that, you know, but it's not my money right? (laughs) (laughs) and it's not my company. But I always think it's pretty amazing when people in an industry in which they're already making tons and tons of money say we have to make a change, even if it bumps up against what we want to do in the short term.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was pretty shocking at the time. It surprised people. I think this was 2017 when he he said, we're going to do this. And I think people were taken aback that this was the direction the company was going to go in. So we'll come
1: back to that later to talk about how that bet played out. What do you think essentially were the components of him trying to solve the streaming problem? What were the things he put in place to do that?
2: So I think the big thing was launching Disney+, Plus, which is Disney's streaming service. And this goes back to this acquisition of Fox, which was we need content, right? We have to put content on this service so people will buy it. And so that is sort of the fundamental reason for this deal. I think what happened here is Disney priced Disney Plus well under Netflix. So it had sort of tremendous subscriber growth. But then the profit, this is again, you know, the profitability issue is a big one. And so they've not quite figured that piece of it out.
1: So Iger had a great run at Disney. He did disruptive things. And then he decided to go. We're going to talk more about that in a second, Beth. When we get back from the break, we'll talk about his departure and his successor. We'll be right back.
3: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
1: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
0: Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code radio20 at bloomberglive.com slash greenfestival.
1: So Bob Iger is 69 years old. He has every accolade you could want. Tons and tons of stock. The guy who grew up in modest circumstances on Long Island is now a multimillionaire. Right,
2: aspiring weatherman.
1: Nice houses, a yacht, all the good things. And uh, he decides to go. And I find that really intriguing. I don't know how many people just decide to pull the plug at the top of their game. Now he was 69. He's four years past a standard retirement age. But he gave an interview to CNBC that I thought was very interesting when he talks about what inspired him to move on. Here's a soundbite. I will say that over time, I think I started listening less and maybe with a little less tolerance of other people's opinions, maybe because of getting a little bit more overconfident in my own, which is sometimes what happens when you get built up, you know, in some form or another as, you know, something special or great or whatever. I was mindful of that. So I became a little bit more dismissive of dissent and other people's opinions than I should have been. And that was was an early sign that it was time. It wasn't the reason I left, but it was a contributing factor. You know, I find that really interesting. I think I think most people aren't self-aware. I think most people don't admit to their faults. But I think more average people do it than CEOs. I think CEOs have a vested interest in being godlike. And that comes with a lack of self-awareness. And I found what Iger said about that, that I need to listen more. And I wasn't listening enough, so I decided to leave. Interesting, but I wonder if you have a different take.
2: I was struck by that too. I heard that interview. It's pretty honest. You don't hear many people say that and as you said especially CEOs and I think that maybe was part of his magic that he knew how to listen to people and give them space, let them be experts and that was happening less. Maybe he was starting to feel like the smartest guy in the room all the time and that's a dangerous place to be.
1: Well, and that's kind of an interesting segue and in, I think what might have separated him from Bob Chapek in terms of their different makeups as managers. But before we get to that, I'm really curious as to how Iger and Disney landed on Chapek to begin with as his successor. How did that happen?
2: So – Yes, Iger says this, that this is one of the reasons he left. But there'd been a lot of discussion for many years about his succession and his departure. I think ultimately he delayed his retirement four times before he ultimately left. And there was always a reason, you know, maybe the person that they thought was going to succeed him left the company. That wasn't the right time because he'd just done this deal and needed to integrate it. So there was always a reason. But I think part of what happened was some possible CEO candidates left the company because maybe they started to wonder, is this guy ever going to really go? So we see a lot of strong candidates leave. Chapek's sort of similar to Iger. I mean, he'd been at the company a long time, was one of his lieutenants. He ran the parks business, was much more sort of considered an operations guy, a numbers guy. And so when Iger ultimately decides now's the time for me to go, Chapek is sort of the obvious candidate.
1: Boy, so I've got a couple of thoughts on that. One is, I sort of think it's this weird survival tactic that a lot of CEOs use, which is just to say, I don't have a successor. I am the only possible person who can run this company. Therefore, Board, you can't fire me. And we see this in corporate America all the time. They're supposed to be good about planning. They're supposed to be thinking ahead. But of course, people also like running things, and they like the jet. Iger said he loved the jet, the Disney jet. And... Uh, their compensation is spectacular, and they're the coolest guys in their industries. So sometimes they don't leave, and a way they ensure that is by not naming an obvious successor. So let's talk about that for a minute. Do you think the fact that a successor didn't emerge at Disney was by design?
2: It was probably more subconscious than intentional because he's a smart guy. I think he knows it's probably a taint on his legacy in the long term. But I do think there is really something to what you're saying. He's charismatic guy, big strategic thinker, has a vision, perhaps it's threatening to bring in someone else that also has a vision and is a charismatic guy. I mean, does he really want to be overshadowed? So that's definitely a theory that I've seen floated. Do you buy it? Yeah, I do, to Why? some extent. It's sort of like the president, right? You, you get to that spot because <laughs> you have an ego, I think, a little bit. And, and I think, I don't know, I, I imagine that there just is something to that, right? You don't want someone to one-up you when you're the guy in charge. Right. It's
1: a little bit like The Ring, right, in Lord of the Rings. Like if you get that thing on your finger, even if you're Frodo, Frodo might become avaricious. I don't know anything about Lord of the Rings. Oh, you don't? Wow, I just (laughs) laid that one on you. That's fine. What I meant to say was that that I think of Bob Iger as a uniquely modest, self-aware person with a lot of talents who I hadn't expected to become so enamored of the CEO suite that he wouldn't let go that he would hang out of that ring as tightly as possible. And yet he did.
2: And I think it's interesting what you said, that he acknowledged he liked the Jets. I mean, that's pretty honest. So
1: <laughs> Right, right. And, you know, he also said he, like, he chose not to run for president of the United States because he thought it would blow up his family life and end his marriage. And he said that publicly. I aspire to this thing, but I walked away from it. And yet he didn't really walk away from Disney. And so therein lies a very disruptive, crash-coursey tale that we'll continue to focus on here.
2: Right. If he can't be president, I guess I'll go back and be CEO <laughs> CEO again. Right? Yeah,
1: I'll take that second bite. The other thing you said about Iger and Chapek is, in a way, how similar they are. They came up through Disney to a certain extent. Chapek was an operations guy, et cetera, et cetera. But I think one of the interesting things about Iger as an executive is that he wed the corporate management role of looking at the bottom line and thinking about things strategically to this other ability to deal with creatives, to deal with Hollywood talent and deal with directors and actors and writers. Not that we writers are difficult people to deal with. Not at all. No, no. But it needs a certain kind of, I think, management style from someone who appreciates what creativity is about.
2: I agree. I think those are two very different skills and it's rare you find them in the same person.
1: And I don't know that that was there in the person of poor Bob Chapek. Yeah.
2: I think that's fair. I mean, I I think as well, so the way Iger departed sort of acknowledges that a little bit. When he leaves, when he says, I'm not going to be CEO anymore, he becomes executive chairman. Chapek becomes CEO and reports to him. So
1: that's all completely nutty. But, I mean, why if you want to run an organization well? and someone else takes the reins. Do you then say, yeah, but your old boss can hang around. He can sort of sit on your shoulder. And in effect, the other thing that Niagara did was he said, I'll also keep the cool work for myself.
2: Right. I'll be the creative
1: guy. I'll be the creative guy. You can run the parks, and you can meet with the CFO, and I'm going to handle the streaming release of Hamilton and negotiate that. And I'll deal with a reboot of Frozen or whatever else it was. But really the fun stuff, the creative stuff, and you're not going away so the board sees you hanging around. Isn't that a little weird?
2: Yeah, I do think it kind of set Chapek up for failure in a way. He thinks he's the CEO. He has the title. And yet Iger is sort of looming over everything, right? He keeps his office. There were reports that he was meeting with Chapek's lieutenants without him. It's not really built. He
1: was success. having parties at his house that I think either Chapek didn't attend or Chapek wasn't invited to with other Disney managers. I think that came out in some of the
2: news. It's tough. I mean, that's not that I would argue that is not that's a very drawn out process that is just not going to work out. He's always going to be looking over his shoulder.
1: And why didn't the board intervene? Why didn't the board of directors, which in corporate America is supposed to be this outside governing force. They're supposed to make sure that CEOs don't become tyrants or CEOs don't become so willy-nilly in their decisions that it's not good for the company or good for employees or good for investors. That's the ideal role of the board of directors. In reality, boards can be rubber stamps. They're often populated by people the CEO picks, et cetera, et cetera. Was any of that in play here?
2: Well, I do think that it probably goes back to what you were saying around these questions about Chapek, right? Was he ready for this? Did he have those sort of soft skills, that EQ that we talk about today that's so important in executives? Maybe the board didn't see that. And so they actually felt like the structure was the best approach as they kind of got Chapek ramped up.
1: That he could sort of learn on the job with with Iger hanging around as a mentor. Right. In an ideal world. And let's talk a little bit about Chapek here. He He came up completely from like a corporate management background, right? Right.
2: Yeah, he's very data-driven. He's on the park side of the business. And interestingly, he doesn't deviate that much from the strategy that Iger put in place. It's much more, I think, about those softer skills that maybe the board didn't think he had and less about actual strategy, which when you look at it is pretty similar to Iger.
1: And those softer skills, things like do not piss off Scarlett Johansson. That, I mean, that's right? Is that like one. a softer skill you should sort of look after?
2: Right. Don't piss off ScarJo. That's, <laughs> that's not a great move. And I what happened
1: one. there? Just recap on that one.
2: Well, so this is kind of interesting because it also ties into some of these issues we're seeing with streaming. So Black Widow comes out, the company decides they're going to put it out both on streaming and in theaters at the same time. She doesn't like this as a star because it— has the potential to cut into her earnings. She raises this, sues Disney. Chapik and the company actually released the details of her contract, which I think, again, not a great way to smooth over your talent. And I think something Iger was appalled by, he would not have handled it. It was
1: sort of like an act of almost public shaming. Exactly. Like, what do you have to complain about? You already get bazillions of dollars and now you want even more.
2: And we're in the middle of a pandemic as well was sort of the tone of the letter. So that was not a great move. Well,
1: it was not a great move in terms of how you relate to Hollywood talent. Right. Though average Americans might be able to get the idea of like, you're already making through- 20 million. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. But, you know, Hollywood works in a certain way and the star system works in a certain way. And if you want stars in your films and you want A list directors, you have to court them in a certain way. And Jay Peck, I think, sort of said, no, you're a cog in the Disney machine and you're just like one of the rides at the theme park and we're going to treat you accordingly.
2: Right, and I think that this was a bigger issue around creative and talent in general. He restructured the company, so it used to be there were all these little fiefdoms that controlled their own budgets. He put all the budgets under one guy, so all the creatives felt like they didn't have as much control. Just little things like that really send a strong signal and do change the culture.
1: And then through no fault of his own, shortly after he takes over as CEO— the pandemic arrives on Disney's doorstep. It arrives on the world's doorstep. But Disney is in a bunch of businesses that are both, at least initially, harmed by COVID and helped by COVID in terms of what their customers need. The theme park business, people aren't going to go to theme parks.
2: No, theme park business basically shuts down. But people are home watching a lot of TV or streaming.
1: Streaming. streaming. So COVID helps the streaming bet.
2: Helps the streaming bet in a really big way. And I think people thought this was going to be a permanent shift. People are home. They're signing up for Disney+. Plus. They want to watch Hamilton. They have all this extra time on their hands. They're looking for content. So the streaming business just balloons, I think, in a way people had not really expected.
1: And a lot of that accrues to Iger, though, right? Like the praise for the fact that the streaming business took off, even though... COVID was in no one's control. It was just an accidental boost.
2: Right. And one thing that Chapik does, though, is he ups the predictions for how fast this business is going to grow. So he says, all of a sudden, we're going to have, you know, more than 200 million subscribers by, you know, X date. And, again, very aggressive numbers But I think
1: this... Very aggressive in, like, he tripled or something the numbers that Iger originally projected for the number of streaming customers, right? Right. It was like 2x or 3x what Iger had originally laid out.
2: Yeah. And I think it was really about, this is his... I'm placing everything behind this. Streaming is the future. This is what this company is about. We're just putting all our resources behind this.
1: And then, of course, the bloom comes off of the streaming rose.
2: Yes, And this is a really interesting one because, again, I don't think that this is anyone's fault necessarily, but there's a real shift on Wall Street, right? So previously, subscriber growth had been the big thing everyone wanted. So are you growing your base? What are your numbers? And so Disney had priced its product, like, relatively low compared to, let's say, a Netflix. But all of a sudden, people are like, wait, what about profitability? (laughs) And so now the market has shifted to – can we make money off of this, not just is this a growing business? We're not going
1: to be patient anymore with your long-term bet of building a business at the expense of profits. Right. Like, And that happened like, within two years or was, something, right?
2: Yes. It was really fast.
1: The dangers of courting Wall Street.
2: Yeah. And Disney has some pretty serious losses. So the quarter before Chapek is ousted, he reported a $1.5 billion loss. So that's a big deal.
1: So streaming sagging. And the writing is starting to appear on the wall for Chepax end at the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, this feels like a good place for a break. Let's just take one more break, and then I want to dive into Iger's grand return. So please stick around.
3: Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you.
0: So I'm Beth. I'm not Beth. I'm Beth. You're Beth.
1: <laughs> I'm back with Beth Coet. Let's climb back into the misery of Bob Jabeck. And things are fraying for him at Disney. Streaming is unraveling, it's not hitting the goals he set for himself. And in the background still is Bob Iger, who we now know from great subsequent reporting in Bloomberg and elsewhere. That Iger was sort of cheering this on at this point, right? He was sort of cheering on the demise of JPEC, meaning he probably wasn't unhappy on one hand that some of these managerial problems had arisen.
2: I think that's fair. I also think there is something we see with what we call boomerang CEOs who come back to their companies is that in retrospect, they have kind of undermined their successor in some way. They've said things. They've done things. And so we know Iger was starting to suggest to friends that he wasn't happy with the direction of the company publicly, maybe saying things that were in contrast to what Chapek was saying. So we're seeing that a little bit at this point.
1: And he was particularly, as I recall, upset that during COVID, when there were government subsidies to companies to help them keep people employed, that Chapek decided to lay off people anyway. At the parks, yeah. At the parks. And Iger felt that it was inhumane, essentially. And he intervened to stop it.
2: And we saw a couple things like that later when we were seeing the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida. Employees felt like Chapek did not speak up fast enough about this and say, you know, we're against this. This is wrong. And Iger, meanwhile, tweets that he's opposed to this. I think he goes on. That he's
1: opposed to Florida's measure.
2: Exactly. Goes on TV and says this. And so, again, sort of really setting himself up in contrast to Chapek, I think, was part of his undoing a little bit, the way he dealt with this fallout from these political issues.
1: Well, and it's also a little tricky, right, because you can't fault Iger for saying, I want our employees to be treated differently if the resources exist to support them in this difficult time. He can argue that Disney's culture And its public stance as a corporate entity, vis-a-vis the don't say gay bill in Florida, is in keeping with where it had been traditionally. And he felt that Chapek was tipping the apple cart. So there's this kind of empirical, rational, discernible reason he might be doing this. But then also, like, maybe he wants that ring back. Right. He doesn't like the fact that someone else has the ring.
2: Right. And again, he's not going to be president. So (laughs) what's he going to do? I'm sure there was something to that. Maybe retirement wasn't quite what he thought (laughs) it was going to be.
1: So eventually Disney's board makes Bob Chapek walk the plank. And it seems like with a healthy assist and maybe even a push from Bob Iger, from the reporting we've done during that period of time, you know, where was the board? How were they navigating The fact that they had in Bob Chapek, a non-ideal executive, and in Bob Iger, a non-fully retired former executive with an agenda.
2: This is a tough one for the board, right? They don't come out looking the best in this because not that long before Chapek is ousted, they did renew his contract. Apparently, some reporting has shown that Mark Parker, one of the board members, executive chairman of Nike, And Mary Barra, CEO of GM, had sort of questioned his leadership, but the board decided, you know what, actually, maybe if we do back him, it'll boost his confidence. And so they renew his contract.
1: So let's just stop there for a minute. So this is June of 2022. I think that's
2: right. And when did
1: Chapek get forced out? In
2: uh, November. November. Yeah. November.
1: November of 2022. So five months after the board signs a new contract with this guy, they then participate in his defenestration. That's also wacky to me. That's like as big a crash course as you possibly could have. Why didn't they just not renew his contract? Was it because the board couldn't get a uniform view of what to do?
2: I think it's the Iger problem. Who takes over, right? If you get rid of this guy, do you have someone in the wings ready to step up? And at that point, I'm not sure that they had been having these conversations yet with Iger. Publicly, he had been pretty definitive saying, oh, you can't go home again. I would never be CEO of Disney. I mean... He's on the record saying that quite a bit. So,
1: And then he's at home, home, saying, I can't wait to get back to we're Disney. We're on
2: the yacht, right. So I think that they publicly really did have to support him at this point. But then sort of the turnaround from there, the whiplash of then so few months later saying, actually, you're out. I so what shocking. happens
1: between June and November in 2022?
2: So, the big one, there's a couple. One is what we were talking about with the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida. I think that's sort of bubbling in the background. But the big one is really an earnings call where Chapek reports that the company has lost $1.5 billion dollars, American dollars. dollars. American, right, US dollars. Not
1: 1.5 billion Mickey pins, (laughs) not 1.5 billion Hamilton tokens.
2: Right. Real money. Real money. And he sort of glosses over it when he's reporting it and I think it was not only the loss but sort of the way it was handled that took people back and I think made them question should we really be supporting this guy
1: you just talked about that 1.5 billion dollar loss buddy like you talked about scarlett johansson's contract
2: right it was not taken seriously a little bit enough.
1: too cavalier right so this is probably somebody who has we talked earlier about Iger's self-awareness chapek may have a self-awareness deficit on a sort of a grand mall scale
2: I think that's part of it. He also, I think, was feuding with various members of the executive team. He'd fired some very senior people. And then, you know, it was ultimately the CFO, Christine McCarthy, who is the one who goes to Iger and says, would you come back? This is something you would consider.
1: Do CFOs freelance like that? (laughs) (laughs) Did you just sort of decide, I am the one member of the board and I am the chief steward of the company's finances and I'm going to drive over to Brentwood? And have a glass of wine with Bob Iger and convince him to come back. Does that happen a lot in corporate America? It's an unusual America?
2: arrangement. Uh-huh. It's an unusual arrangement. I mean, I think I think
1: <laughs> should she, we suspect that any of that was choreographed? I
2: I think she she'd been at the company for a long time. She'd kept in touch with Iger. I think she really did not like what was happening. It seemed as though she and Chapek had had a falling out. So I don't think it was coordinated. I think she was maybe in touch enough with him that she could sort of float that question.
1: And she's seeing these deteriorating numbers. Right. She's seeing Chay go on a conference call and say, <clears throat> $1.5 anyway. Right. And he moves right along, right. which probably also was discomfitting for her.
2: I think that's true.
1: And so is it a surprise that when she rolls into Iger's living room or office or wherever that conversation happened that he said, yes, I'll come back right away, right now, tomorrow. When do you want me?
2: I think at that point he was probably ready. I think he <laughs> had probably been thinking about like it. Like jumping
1: out of his shoes ready.
2: Right? Yeah. So then when... Susan Arnold, the then chairman or still chairman of the board, approaches him. She knows he's going to say yes because the seed's already been planted by the CFO. So now Bob Iger is back. Now he's back.
1: And when he first got back to the company, there was a little bit of this like hallelujah moment. The stock jumped, I think, more than 10 percent on the day it was announced he would come back. Made one of those nice little spikes up on the chart and then settled down afterwards into reality. I think I'd have to look now at where the stock is but certainly at one point it sort of settled down in the sort of range of where it was when JPE was still running things which suggests that investors want to see what Iger is going to do at Disney and to see if he can really turn it around so what does he have to do
2: yeah I mean the problems that JPE was dealing with are still there right we still have to figure out the streaming business still have to figure out how to make it profitable some of the initiatives that had started under Chepeck, Bob C. You know, <laughs> cost-cutting measures. I think that's still going to happen. I think just the investment, endless investment in content streaming, just at the growth of the business at all costs is over. I think that that and it's has over to because end. of why profits. It's not making money. They have to cut costs and figure out a way to do it.
1: And is Bob Iger a guy who can come in and cut? He's a guy who spent his whole life building and running victory laps for acquisitions. He's never been a cost cutter. No one's ever said he's a flagrant spender. There were, you know, concerns about what he paid for some acquisitions. But in terms of Disney's own budgets and financial management, I think he and his team were considered smart, responsible managers, but they weren't cost cutters.
2: I think that's a fair point. I mean, there are other ways, right? He could go back. He could make a content deal with Netflix, right? We could go back and see him do some sort of licensing, leasing type of deal, he could make another acquisition. There are things he could do, but I do think controlling costs, maybe being more strategic about what platform you release this piece of content on. I think there's little things that could happen, but when it comes down to it, I mean, a $1.5 billion hole is a big, big hole to fill.
1: And, you know, there's so many collisions involved in this particular story. We, We were talking earlier about which ones do we pick and sort out. But it's sort of interesting that, you know, Iger himself is a disruptor. He disrupts his industry. He leaves. He then disrupts his own CEO. He comes back. And now he's got an outside activist investor who's trying to disrupt him in the person of Nelson Peltz. And Nelson Peltz could be a Disney character, couldn't he, in like (laughs) a certain kind of movie like The Corporate Raider? Yes. Like, you know, with, with, with like a sword and a bandana or something marching up onto your ship. He's a guy who made a name for himself in the 1980s, back when movies like Wall Street were being made and corporate raiders were being glamorized. And they've been kind of less apparent, less visible. And then lo and behold, he's now inside Disney rattling the cage for change.
2: Right. If Bob Iger is sort of the iconic CEO, he's the iconic activist investor. So it's interesting to have these two characters paired together now. And how is Pelt seen? I think by Disney, he's viewed as a disturbance, you know, that he...
1: But how is he viewed by sort of the investment community? You know, the role, like, activist investors sort of say, we are here to get better returns for investors. Our intentions are noble. This is a poorly managed company. Right. And if we hit that company from all sides, they'll get better.
2: I mean, he's been pretty successful at that. And he is... More of a long-term investor, I think, than when you think of a typical activist. He has a very large stake in Disney. I think it's nearly a billion-dollar stake. He has a good track record at other companies of actually making change. But he's mostly done this at consumer-facing companies. So P&G, Heinz, things like that. I mean, we haven't really seen him take on a media company before And maybe you could argue this is sort of consumer-facing, but at its heart, it's a media company.
1: And he's got a laundry list of complaints about how Bob Iger has managed things, doesn't he? Yes. Give us those specifics.
2: You know, I think some of the big ones are he overpaid for Fox. The company's underperformed. One of my favorites was that he was complaining about CEO compensation and then mentions in his filing how one board meeting wasn't going to happen until after a certain date because Iger was off on his yacht off of New Zealand or something. So just really hitting that point hard. But I think in general, one thing that's so interesting about this is he doesn't have a lot of really concrete suggestions other than add me to the board. That's his big thing.
1: Concrete in the sense of this is what Disney needs to do to turn its fortunes around. Exactly. And does Bob Iger have those
2: answers? Not that we've seen yet. So why
1: did he come back? (laughs) I mean, if he's coming back and he's getting a nice big pay package, which he is, he was supposed to come back to do what Bob Chapek couldn't. Right. And yet?
2: You know, maybe these are questions more for his psychologist than for me, but I think there's probably a big piece of it. His legacy feels tainted by this failed succession, right? He did not pick the right guy to take over from him. So there's two ways he could approach this. One, is he going to spend the next two years, he has a two-year contract, really kind of grooming someone, figuring out who's going to take over for me, and that's going to be his main job? Or is it really going to be that plus figuring out what this business looks like? You know, I think the company has said streaming is the future. This is our bet. It still has some assets like ESPN and ABC That are what they call linear TV, right? And it kind of has to figure out what to do with them. How does this fit in the portfolio? So those are open questions, too. He's got to deal with that.
1: It has obviously, you know, the iconic Disneyland and Disney World theme parks. Right. That presumably will get busier now.
2: Except if the economy turns. Unless the economy turns. Right. So that's a big question mark, too.
1: Yeah. You know, I guess earlier I wasn't asking as much of, like, for us to be able to listen in on his sessions with his therapist. Um, (laughs) More just sort of what has he publicly said about concrete steps he's going to take managerially and strategically to march further into the magic kingdom?
2: I think part of it is, again, the softer stuff, right, that he is really known for. So I think he's said that the company had a morale issue. I think talent, creative, felt like it was sort of starting to take a back seat, he's going to put that in the driver's seat again. You know, I think people love him there. Some people do, at least. You know, I'm sure he has his enemies. But I think in general, you know, the company really shone during his time as CEO. And so there probably is a little bit of that shine with him coming back. And I think the hope is, will that boost morale? Will that turn things around? So I think there is sort of the actual strategy piece that needs to get figured out. But I do also think there is, again this EQ piece, the softer piece that he has. And that he's
1: been proven to be very good at.
2: Yeah. And again, with the talent too, with Hollywood talent, he knows how to handle that.
1: What have you learned from watching Disney duke it out with the Bobs in terms of trying to get a control on its future, a handle on its future?
2: Hmm. What have I learned? Well, this is an interesting one because I do feel like the saga is ongoing. So we've not had closure yet. But I do think that this question of legacy and leadership, if you can't figure out who can take over from you, what the company looks like when you're no longer there, it doesn't matter how good a CEO you are. If you can't somehow preserve the future of the company when you're gone, I think that's a huge failing. So kudos to him for those 15 years. But what do the next 15 years look like? And not having a successor in place that you think can really handle that is a huge Disney problem that's an Iger problem, but I think that's a corporate America problem in general. And a
1: board problem. Huge board problem. Because the board has to intervene. Right. And say we want management to evolve in a certain direction.
2: Right. I mean, I think that in and of itself is very telling, right? Like, this is the board's job. Like, they're the ones that are supposed to be figuring this out. And if they have sort of kicked it over to Eiger to figure out, I mean, that's where they should be.
1: This went by really quickly, Beth. Yes,
2: will I you love this. Will come back again sometime? Anytime, have me anytime.
1: I will, I will have you back soon. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, I learned that succession planning really matters because nothing could last forever, continuity is important, And boards shouldn't just defer to CEOs who want to hang around for a really long time. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at Opinion, or me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now and leave a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Anna Mazarakis and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Henriksen, and we had editing help from Katie Boyce, Jeff Grocott, Mike Nietzsche, and Christine Vandenbeilart. And a special thanks today to our video guru, Thasine Robbie. Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. And I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week with another Crash Course.